as Pastor Anthony promised, we are moving forward with uh, the Stand Up Act. And the reading today's Act is 1, 12, 26. And I will be reading the New International Version. And if you can, please stand to read uh, God's Word. <laughs> Matthias chosen to replace Judas. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mountain of Olivers, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room they, where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together, counseling prayer, along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long, long ago through the David concerned Judas, who served as guides to those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in your ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field, this field in their language, Alkedema. That, that is, the field of blood. Or say Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time that Lord Jesus was living among us beginning from John's Baptist to the time where Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Basabas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. They, then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take, to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the, the word of God. Thank you, please. How are you doing with this uh, strange service time? Have you, have you worked out when to eat yet? Helen and I now have brunch at 11.30 in the morning, and then we have afternoon tea when we get back afterwards, and then we have dinner, so it's working out really well for me. Will you pray with me? In the words of the Acts of the Apostles, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Grant it to your servant to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, 
and move in power through the name of your holy servant. Amen. Well, our passage today is the second half of Acts chapter 1, this account of uh, Matthias' selection as replacement for Judas as an apostle. It's a passage that's not generally given much attention. In fact, it's often approached with a degree of suspicion. Did the apostles really need to replace Judas? After all, we hear nothing of Matthias again for the rest of the book of Acts. Is the idea of the 12 apostles even important? We don't hear anything at all, at least by name, about eight of them after this passage. Only Peter really gets much coverage in Acts, and even he disappears after Acts chapter 15. So what is the point in Luke telling us about the replacement of characters whose stories he isn't even going to follow? Worse still, why give attention to a passage when some claim that this is an account of the apostles making the wrong decision? In two ways. First, some argue that if the disciples had waited until after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they wouldn't have had to use lots to determine their choice of replacement. The apostles got the process of decision-making wrong, they say. And second, some say, had the believers waited, they would have been guided by God to recognize Paul as the twelfth apostle. They got the person wrong as well. But to be honest with you, I don't think that either of those popular arguments hold water. Luke gives us no indication whatsoever that what the apostles do here was the wrong thing. And the case for Paul as the replacement apostle is really quite a weak one. Paul didn't begin his apostolic journeys for about 12 years after this. Others of the 12 were dead by then. Luke gives this passage prominence with passages on either side that give the fundamental foundations for the mission of the church. So we should be wary, I think, of writing this off as an unimportant story. If you have a Bible with you, uh, will you turn with me to Acts chapter 1? As is the case each week, it will be helpful to you to have the text open in front of you. Look at those uh, verses that we've read, there's a host of different and interesting issues there. There's prayer among the earliest believers. This is the first ever account of a church prayer meeting. There's decision making in Acts. Many passages in the book deal with how the church made decisions. So it would be profitable perhaps to compare and contrast the ways in which these sometimes very difficult decisions are reached. Maybe that would provide us with a guide to our own decision-making in the church today. We also find out more about Judas's fate, about the ways in which the first Christians read and understood and applied the scriptures from the Old Testament, and about the nature of the apostolic calling. But the issue that I want us to focus on today, touching on some of these others as we go, 
is an issue that I think runs right through these verses. It is the issue of servant leadership. When Helen and I moved to Canada at the end of 1999, uh, and I began taking classes at Regent College, the college's second president, Walt Wright, was just coming to the end of his uh, tenure. Uh, for those of you who may have known Walt, Walt's major concern was leadership, and his hobby was mountaineering, climbing. In mountain climbing, he found a powerful metaphor for leadership. He argued, in fact, that most of the pastors who'd been trained in seminary in the past had been trained as what he called lead climbers. But once they were in church ministry, they discovered that what they really needed to be was expedition leaders, those dedicated to freeing others up to be lead climbers. And he used to tell this story. In 1976, a US team set out for the Indian Himalayas. An Everest climber from Seattle had arranged the climb to celebrate his daughter's 21st birthday. She was named after the peak that they were going to climb, Nanda Devi. This is a picture of the peak. You can only just see it behind all of that uh, cloud. At over uh, 25,600 feet, it's the highest uh, peak that's entirely in India. For scale, by the way, Grouse Mountain is 4,100 feet. 25,600 feet they're going to climb. Now, this uh, team that went to climb Nanda Devi was made up entirely of experienced climbers who were all friends with one another and had climbed together in the past. And because of that, no one person was designated as the team leader. Was it a successful expedition, asked Walt. Well, they achieved the goal. Three climbers reached the summit of the mountain on the 1st of September, so they achieved their aim. But during the climb, no one took responsibility for making crucial decisions, each one deferring to one another. And as the ascent progressed, exhaustion led to arguments. Nanda Devi herself became ill at high altitude camp number four. No one insisted that she go back. Everyone was nice. No individual decision was taken. No group decision was taken. And Nanda Devi died. She died the victim of a leaderless group of very gifted people. The climb ended in recriminations and a casting of blame, with climbers saying things like, I should have stepped forward and pressed for a decision. Everyone was taking care of themselves. No one was taking care of the group. And Walt said it was unlikely that any of those climbers would ever go on an expedition again without it being clear who was responsible for taking care of the group and for enforcing the decisions it made. Peter Drucker, the noted management expert, says leadership involves the risk of decision-making for the good of the group. 
Leadership involves making decisions when the alternatives are equal. Well, one year earlier than that, on September the 24th, 1975, Doug Scott and Dougal Haston climbed through the clouds and stood on the top of the world, the summit of Mount Everest at 29,000 feet. They'd climbed the mountain the hard way up the southwest face, and both of them became world famous as a result of that climb. Which one of them was the leader of this successful assault on Everest? Neither. They were both lead climbers. They stood on the summit and they received worldwide acclaim for the group's efforts. But it was another climber, a British mountaineer named Chris Bonington, an accomplished climber in his own right. He was the expedition leader. He didn't reach the summit. His job was to make the decisions that would make it possible for Scott and Haston to make full use of their gifts and abilities, and to make sure that they had the necessary resources so that they could successfully reach the top. What kind of leader was Chris Bonington? Well, not the best at anything, but he had recruited experts in every area of the climb. And he'd been given authority by the team to keep everyone focused on the goal, to see that good decisions were made, to make decisions when the group couldn't, to make sure that the resources needed at each stage were provided at the right time, and of course to watch over the health of the climbers to be sure that they were fit to do their part of the climbing. In other words, Chris Bonington was the servant of the team and the servant of the mission. This is what, in church, we call servant leadership. Walt Wright said, leadership empowers a team of talented people. The prominent Christian businessman Max Dupree, whose books I would recommend if you're uh, at all interested in leadership or you're in business, Max Dupree says, empowering leadership abandons itself to the strengths of others. As the apostles walk back from the Mount of Olives and gather in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, they have before them, metaphorically speaking, a huge mountain to climb. The announcement of the good news about Jesus to the ends of the earth. Peter stands in Walt Wright's words, not as lead climber, but as expedition leader appointed by Jesus. He serves the group. And the servant leadership he offers them involves helping them to make a necessary decision. And how he does this offers us, I suggest, a number of useful lessons in leadership, which I, I want to spend a bit of time drawing out. Before we get to Peter, though, there are a couple of observations that we should make. The leadership that Peter will offer the group doesn't emerge out of nowhere. Luke tells us two things about the conditions. First, he hints about the unity of the believers. They return together from the Mount of Olives, and they gather in a common place where they're all staying. The safe thing, of course, would have been for them to scatter, 
but they stay together. A sense of shared identity is important in any group if anyone is going to be able to lead them into action. So many churches are immobilized by a total lack of unity, a lack of shared commitment to one another. And without this common identity, it doesn't matter how good the pastor or the elders or other leaders are, the job of leadership just keeps getting thwarted by people's individual needs. Every person has to be attended to, encouraged, cajoled. There's no commitment to the goals of the group. So the leader's only goal becomes making all of these individuals into a group. I suspect that there are a lot of pastors today that are burning themselves out, trying simply to hold their churches together. So the thought of engaging in world-changing mission, well, that really never has a chance. The second significant precondition Luke points to is that this unified body of believers were, in, in his words, all joined together constantly in prayer. It was out of this constant, united prayer by all of the believers together in the same place that the leadership that Peter offered emerged. Notice the parts. All the believers meeting together constantly in prayer. That's the model of prayer Acts is going to keep placing before us again and again and again. If the church is going to ever begin to make headway up the mountain, this kind of united prayer is essential. Leadership that doesn't emerge from this foundation must, by definition, be based on a foundation other than the guidance of God. The church's prayer meeting is the powerhouse of the church. There are always reasons why we can't attend. But in the end, the power this church, or in fact any church has, is directly related to its people gathering to pray. So out of this unity and this prayer, Peter offers his service to the church. It seems to me that Peter has been much maligned in popular Christian thought. He's commonly portrayed as headstrong or like a bull in a china shop. But here he is, before being filled with the Holy Spirit, not only offering leadership to the whole gathering of believers, but doing so very well. And it's important that we recognize that the initiative Peter takes here is legitimate. He's doing exactly what Jesus told him to do. Immediately before predicting Peter's three denials, Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, uh, Simon is Peter's given name. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. That strengthening of his brothers is exactly what Peter is doing here. So the Christian leader doesn't just do whatever occurs to them. They act on the instructions of Jesus. Principally, of course, Jesus' instructions are in Scripture. And that is where uh, Peter immediately turns to in order to justify the actions that he's going to propose. Verse 16, 
Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas. The first role of anyone in leadership in the church is to point people to the word of God. The Bible is their way to get to know God and his will, not the philosophy expounded by any person, however well-meaning they might be. Peter's use of scripture as the basis for the direction he gives the believers is a good model for us. I'm a good enough leader to know that I'm not a good enough leader. But I don't have to come up with new inspiration, new ideas, new instructions, new philosophies. Our inspiration, our ideas, our instructions, our philosophy comes from this book. The task of the leader is to place it before people. That's why when Paul gives a list of qualifications for Christian leadership to Timothy, the only qualification that concerns their abilities is the ability to teach. All the other qualifications are about character. It's interesting, too, how Peter describes Scripture. Long ago, the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David, he says. And Peter's referring, of course, to the Psalms, two of which he's going to quote in a moment. This is Peter expressing his faith in Scripture as the Word of God. Now, we speak of the Bible having genuine dual authorship. There's a human author, in this case, David, but the words of the Bible are also superintended by the Holy Spirit so that they can also be attributed to him. That's double authorship, human and Holy Spirit. Good leaders in the church know the Word of God. Now, Peter knows which passages are appropriate to this occasion. And they believe that Scripture is the Word of God, that it can be relied on to direct the actions of God's people. I don't mean that church leaders need to have memorized lots of the Bible, although obviously that's not a bad thing. They need to understand it. They need to have faith in it because it is deeply at work in them. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And Christian leaders don't use the Bible like ammunition to help them get their way, firing off verse after verse, generally ripped out of context, in order to overwhelm you with their superior knowledge. Paul says servant leaders teach and admonish wisely because of their own rich interaction with God's word. The particular scriptures that Peter quotes are from Psalms 69 and 109. And the second of those is really quite straightforward. Psalm 109 says, may another take his place of leadership. Peter is simply identifying Judas as the subject of the prophecy in Psalm 109. But the reason for Peter choosing the first verse he quotes is less immediately obvious. May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. In Psalm 69, David is addressing those who hate God, 
with no reason. Uh, the New Testament commentator Eckhart Schnabel says, Luke applies what David said in the Psalms about wrongdoers generally to Judas specifically. In other words, Peter is interpreting this verse using a comparison. If God is going to deal with the wrongdoers referred to in Psalm 69 by replacing them as leaders of his people, how much more must this be God's will in the far more serious case of Judas's wrongdoing? There's a, a lighter, heavier inference. If this is true of a, a lighter, less significant thing, then it must be true of this weightier, more significant thing. Now, it doesn't matter whether you follow the technicalities of that or not. The point I'm willing to make is that Peter here is acting as a capable interpreter of Scripture. Christian leaders need to be able to do more for others than simply repeat the obvious statements of the Bible. Incidentally, you may have noticed in the NIV version there that those verses 18 and 19 were in brackets, the description of what happens to Judas there. I think the NIV is right to put that piece in brackets. Luke doesn't dwell on this, and he only includes it there to aid his readers in understanding the scriptures that Peter quotes. And the verses Peter quotes are not focused on Judas, but rather on the gap that's created by his absence, the need for it to be filled. So Peter continues, Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Peter here is performing the key duty of a servant leader. He's defining the group's task and identity. And this is really the heart of the passage. Why did Luke tell us this about the apostles if he wasn't going to follow through with their stories? Because they have a special and symbolic identity. It's clear that Jesus chose 12 not because these were going to be the only ones left after his departure to begin to spread his message. We're told right here that there were about 120 at this time. He chose 12 because his followers are the new Israel, inheriting from the people of Israel all of the promises made to them in the Old Testament. And since the people of Israel were established by 12 patriarchs, who gave rise to 12 tribes, these 12 men are the new patriarchs of the new Israel. In his gospel, Luke records Jesus saying to the 12, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you, just as my Father has conferred on me, a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the apostles have a real job to do, but they are also symbols of the new Israel that Jesus has inaugurated. Sometimes servant leadership involves symbolic leadership. Now, this is still true today. Pastors are often taken by society 
to symbolize the, the values and the identity of their church. The restoration of the kingdom to Israel requires the symbol of 12 patriarchs. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the 12 don't keep replacing apostles who die. This is the only time this happens. Their role is not one that the church is going to need all through the centuries, all down the ages. But it's no less significant for that. Like the patriarchs of the Old Testament were for Israel, the apostles stand as symbols of the Christian community, the first members of the reconstituted people of God, the first sent ones commissioned to go out with the good news of the kingdom. Eckhart Schnabel again says, the identity of the church as the people of God is tied to the twelve as the symbolic representatives of Israel and of God's kingdom, which is now being restored. Like the twelve sons of Jacob, this early role was important, but it didn't need to be perpetuated. When James, the brother of John, dies about AD 41, very soon after these events, he isn't replaced. What we have today in place of those chosen eyewitnesses are their words, the New Testament. All subsequent generations of Christians are dependent on the testimony of these first witnesses. And it's because the 12's field of mission was to the Jews, particularly in Palestine, that most of the apostles only have a small part to play in Acts. Because Acts itself is concerned with the outward expansion of the church into wider and wider spheres of mission. The 12 are the, the symbolic foundation of the church in Jerusalem, the foundation of the new Israel, and it's because of them that there is a center from which the others can go out further and further and further into the world. And Peter recognizes the symbolic significance of the 12, and he's convinced that the service of this group must go on. A key task of any leader is to identify and nurture other leaders. But Peter isn't looking for just anyone to be a leader. He's not just trying to fill a slot because we need somebody who can go and do the work in their junior Sunday school or such like. No, he needs someone who can fulfill this special symbolic role. So what he does is he outlines the qualifications. One who'd been with them the whole time that Jesus was in ministry, from his baptism by John all the way until the time he ascended. Now, among the 120 who are gathered in the upper room is James, Jesus' brother. James is going to follow Peter into the role of leader of the Jerusalem church in due course. But he is not acceptable for this role. He didn't believe in Jesus or follow Jesus during his earthly ministry. So even though he grew up with Jesus and knew him better than anyone else there, he doesn't qualify for this role because of the qualifications that Peter sets. Good leaders, like Chris Bonington on Everest, set criteria so that the right people end up in the right roles. No special friends for 
special favours for friends or celebrities. So you see, Peter does do here a series of things that demonstrate good servant leadership. And in response to this initiative, this servant leadership that Peter's given to the believers, they propose the names of two men who meet the criteria and who are brave enough to be publicly identified with Jesus despite the danger that this puts them in from the Jewish and the Roman authorities. Joseph, called Bosabbas, and Matthias. Joseph was such a common name in first century uh, uh, Israel that people would generally add a nickname. So he is known as Barsabbas, which means uh, son of Sabbath. In other words, he was born on a Sabbath day. Matthias is short for Mattathias, which means gift of God. Luke, I think, is intentionally vague about the method of selection. He says casting lots, but then he doesn't give us any clue as to how that actually happens. Normally, casting lots would involve writing the names on stones or on other objects, then putting those into a container and shaking it until, until one of them fell out. But Luke doesn't use the usual word for casting lots here. And what he means is it remains uncertain. In this way, he's not setting a precedent with this account for decision-making in churches. And this approach, whatever it was, is certainly superseded by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church in the next passage. But if this part remains intentionally vague, Luke is unequivocal about the other element in this process. Verse 24, Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart, Show us which of these two you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry. Whatever other elements might be a part of a church's decision-making process, prayer is essential. And so Peter's initiative results in action, and Matthias is selected. Where did Peter get his ideas about servant leadership from? Well, from a mountain climber, of course. The one who had preached the Sermon on the Mount. The one who had taken Peter with him up the Mount of Transfiguration. The one who had left Peter and the others a little earlier on the Mount of Olives. The one who had ascended beyond the highest mountain peak. Surely, Peter took the action he did that day because he was thinking back to the instructions Jesus had given him. So let me finish this afternoon by giving you that conversation, which is recorded for us by Luke in the 22nd chapter of his gospel. A dispute also arose among the disciples as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? 
Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Let's pray. Lord, each of us, as we think back, can think of great Christian leaders who have had an impact upon us. People who have been like your son. People who have served us and encouraged us. People who have helped us to make difficult decisions when a choice had to be made. On this Thanksgiving weekend, Lord, we just want to give you thanks for those people. Thank you for the influence that they've had in our lives. We know too, Lord, that the best way to give thanks is to emulate them, and so we would ask, please, Lord, give us the courage to follow the example that they set as they follow the example of Christ. Let us be an example to others in due course. We ask it in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.